It's my pleasure to next introduce to you Dr. Tim McCalmont. He's a professor of dermatology and pathology at the University of California, nearby San Francisco. He's been a consulting dermatopathologist in an academic setting for 16 years. Dr. McCalmont has been selected as the UCSS Department of Dermatology Teacher of the Year for uh, past four occasions uh, for his devotion and education in residents and practitioners. He's going to speak to us on interpretation of pathology reports. Please welcome Dr. McCalmont. Good morning. Let me just get familiar with how I'm doing things here. So the, uh, I'm the strange tumor guy, and uh, that's, that's my job. Uh, people send me strange tumors, and I uh, tell them what they are. Um, sometimes it's skin rashes, but mostly it's tumors. And uh, usually when I lecture, I lecture about strange tumors. So I stand up here and I show strange pictures of strange tumors and teach people how to diagnose them. So this is going to be a little different than my usual kind of lecture because it's going to be more of a philosophical thing where we're going to talk about issues that come up in pathology reporting, what they mean to you as you take care of patients, how to resolve them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I am going to show maybe uh, four or five path pictures, so I'll apologize for that in advance. Um, I'll explain them because I realize you don't routinely look at uh, pathology. Um, I debated about whether to show a lot of clinical pictures, but I decided that uh, you're going to have that covered uh, by people who are working primarily in the clinical realm. So we're going to talk about uh, different issues. I can't cover everything. In the, in the time that's been allotted to me. There's just too many issues that come up in pathology. Uh, but when I get at the end, I think we can have um, a discussion about some of the things that you care about uh, as you see pathology reports come back to you. Um, there's no handout with my slides um, in uh, your book that you have, uh, but they are going to post uh, all the slides from my talk on the website. Uh, so you'll have that available to refer to. Um, I don't think you necessarily need to take notes, though, because I'm not going to talk so much about specific management issues. I'm going to talk about sort of general concepts in terms of, of, of dealing with pathology reporting. So in terms of uh, the overall scheme of things, um, I could probably have come up with about 20, but I came up with about eight or nine different issues that come up in the, in the uh, interpretation of pathology reports. So one issue is what type of diagnosis has been um, offered by the pathologist. Um, I want you to think about whether the diagnosis is, is exact or whether it's a descriptive diagnosis. And I'll explain um, what I mean by that. Um, sometimes our diagnoses are negotiable and sometimes they're non-negotiable. And um, I'll talk about that as well. Um, one important issue is to decide whether or not the diagnosis matches your diagnosis and uh, your clinical diagnosis. Now, if you don't have any idea what you're looking at and you do a biopsy, well, that's not going to help. But oftentimes, you have a strong opinion about what the diagnosis is, then the path diagnosis doesn't match your diagnosis, and sometimes problems come up because people don't uh, pursue that in, uh, strongly enough. You got to think about whether the diagnosis is correct. Um, I hope you all understand that a pathology diagnosis is an art of medicine diagnosis rather than a rock-hard science type of diagnosis. So if you send a blood specimen to the lab for a chem panel, 
the blood is run through a machine and there are values measured by machine and calculated, that's, that's a rock hard number that comes back. Histopath is not that way. It's a judgment made by a person and that's what I mean by an art of medicine diagnosis. So like any uh, human being, the people that are generating pathology reports are fallible and so they can make a diagnosis sometimes uh, that's, that's not um, correct and so uh, how do you deal with that? How do you think about that? We'll talk about that a little bit. It's important to think about whether there's a differential diagnosis. This goes together with whether the diagnosis is negotiable or not. Um, and we'll talk about uh, what's, what to think about when you have a differential diagnosis. Are there ways to improve the diagnosis? And often there are. Um, I'll just tell you uh, straight away that one thing that I'm going to emphasize is communication. So a lot of the people that send uh, slides and, and cases to our laboratory, they send a lot of communication with it. Um, increasingly, it's email communication. Increasingly, it's pictorial communication. And it can be extraordinarily helpful in making the diagnosis better for the patient. Um, you need to think about whether uh, there's uh, uh, that you've done everything on your end to make the diagnosis possible. Um, the pathologist uh, sometimes is uh, caught in a situation where they don't really know what's going on and they make the best of a, of a situation where they have incomplete information. Um, some people, um, I'd like to think um, I'm an example of this, are extremely good at making the best of a bad situation and figuring out uh, diagnoses with, with very little information at, at their disposal. But of course you can help by offering more information and we'll talk a little bit um, about that. And then at the end, I'm going to just talk about the general issue of re-excision. When I've talked in this kind of venue before, people are always asking lots of questions about re-excision with different scenarios. And so we'll talk about that, and that'll lead into questions. And so if people have issues and questions about re-excision, um, we can talk about that. So what kind of diagnosis has been um, offered? And you just need to think about what kinds of diagnoses generally um, a pathologist uh, might offer. And it, it by and large, it's, it falls into what we call um, rashes or growths. And um, without giving you um, an, a, a, an overview in my jargon about what the different rashes are, uh, we sort of break things down into, into different categories. So if they're rashes that involve the epidermis, those are the, that's the eczema and psoriasis group. So in our lingo, we call that spongiotic, psoriasiform, and then the interface type of dermatitis, like lichen planus or erythema multiforme. Uh, we see rashes where there's a diffuse dermal involvement, and those are oftentimes either granulomatous or neutrophilic. So those are things like granuloma annulare sweet syndrome. Uh, there's the itchy bump group. Those are things like urticaria, drug reaction, and oftentimes those kinds of rashes have eosinophils in them. Uh, there's vasculitis. The prototype is leukocytoclastic vasculitis. There's the follicular group. Um, that includes things like folliculitis, rosacea, and then alopecia. And then when you have deep inflammation, there's, there's the paniculitis group. On the tumor side of things, um, we can have the standard benign and malignant tumors, as we talked about uh, uh, in, in sort of broad terms in the last talk. You can have cysts. You can have keratoses and verruchi. Uh, you can have hyperplasias, and what I mean by that are things like epidermal nevus, where um, it presents as a growth, even though it's not a true tumor. 
And then you can have um, malformations as well, things like um, nevus sebaceous. So these are the kinds of diagnoses, whether it's a rash or a growth, that you can expect to see um, in your pathology report. And in, when a pathologist offers a diagnosis, oftentimes they offer it and they just assume that you know exactly what, it, what the implications of it are. And um, so you need to be savvy about either uh, using that information um, and, and figuring out exactly what they mean by it or communicating with the pathologist and figuring out uh, uh, what, what's implied by that diagnosis. So just one simple example of the complexity of, of a diagnosis um, over the last couple of decades, uh, basal cell carcinomas are generally being reported uh, by pattern. And uh, that's an approach that really stems from this article that uh, Dr. Max Sexton wrote um, that was published in, in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. And so what are the patterns that we think about in, in, in basal cell carcinoma? Well, there's superficial basal cell, there's nodular basal cell, there's infiltrative basal cell carcinoma, there's micronodular basal cell carcinoma, and then you can use the term either morpheiform or desmoplastic uh, basal cell carcinoma. So this is sort of a gradient of increasing severity when it comes to uh, basal cell carcinoma and the reporting of, of basal cell carcinoma. Some people think that having five different flavors of basal cell carcinoma makes the world too complicated, so they just narrow it down and have two. So they talk about circumscribed basal cell carcinoma, and what they mean by circumscribed is that usually the lesions have fairly distinct boundaries and you know exactly where its limits are, um, uh, even though it may be a little bit imprecise, and so they use that to refer to um, superficial and nodular basal cells together, and then they'll talk about aggressive basal cell carcinoma for the lesions that have uh, more indistinct margins, more prone to, to be deeply invasive, more prone to have perineural invasion associated with them. And that's a, a group that lumps together the infiltrative, the micronodular, and the morpheiform, um, or desmoplastic basal cell carcinomas. So um, uh, this is one of my, my few um, pictures that I'm going to show. And, and uh, so this is basal cell carcinoma, and this is what we call the infiltrative pattern of basal cell carcinoma, where you have these jagged aggregations uh, of, of these blue cells that extend all through um, the, the background tissue um, that's around. So if you're getting a pathology report back and it just says basal cell carcinoma, um, you're not getting enough information. You're not getting enough information to, to engage in patient care. You don't, it doesn't help you decide whether the patient needs a curatage um, which is going to be proper therapy for a circumscribed or superficial basal cell carcinoma, or whether the patient's a candidate for most surgery because they have an infiltrative or a morpheiform uh, basal cell carcinoma. So um, as the responsible clinician for any of these broad diagnoses that we're talking about, whether it's a tumor or whether it's a rash, um, you need to understand the implications um, of, the, of the, the diagnosis Consult with your colleagues. Uh, if, if you don't have all that information, hit the books or hit the literature uh, to broaden your perspective. Or uh, one of the things that I'm going to encourage you throughout this morning's talk, um, interact with the pathologist or the dermatopathologist um, to figure out uh, more information um, about the patient's care. So one general type of, of, of issue that comes up commonly to think about when you get a, a report back is to think about whether the diagnosis is an, an exact diagnosis or whether it's just a descriptive diagnosis. And you want to react to it in a different way depending on whether it's exact or it's descriptive. So exact diagnoses refer to a, an entity extremely narrowly 
And that's a diagnosis that you can act very precisely upon, um, presuming that the diagnosis is correct. So if you get back a diagnosis of infiltrative basal cell carcinoma, you know exactly what that means. It means it's an aggressive type of basal cell carcinoma, and your therapeutic options can be dictated by that. If you get a diagnosis back of melanoma 0.3 mm in thickness, you know exactly what that means and how to plan um, care from that. Same thing with the diagnosis of epidermal nevus. It's very, very precise. Lichen planus, it's a rash, but it's still very precise. Leukocytoclastic vasculitis, another rash, again, very precise. You can look to a book, you can go to the internet, you know exactly how to react uh, uh, to the diagnosis. Now, people who, like you, who have seen lots and lots of pathology reports, you know that the world isn't quite that perfect. And so oftentimes you don't get back that exact diagnosis. So what you get back oftentimes is a descriptive diagnosis. And so a descriptive diagnosis refers to a general category of, of disease. Um, it's oftentimes expressed with stipulations, um, and it's a diagnosis that you can't necessarily act precisely upon until you have an exact diagnosis um, that's, that's been rendered. And that can be rendered because you get a better diagnosis by interacting with the pathologist, or it can uh, be rendered because you know clinically um, how, how to solve the, the situation. So what are the descriptive diagnoses? Well, it's things like melanocytic proliferation. Pathologists use the term proliferation just to refer to lesions generally. It doesn't tell you whether it's benign or malignant, so you don't know that from the pathology report. You need to do some more work on the case. Uh, same thing for a typical melanocytic lesion. Merely describes the situation. It's wide open in terms of what it means. Basaloid neoplasm, another uh, euphemistic term when it might be basal cell, but it might not be. And so we use uh, the term to refer to the general category in a, in a general way, uh, but we don't make a specific diagnosis. Lichenoid dermatitis, it's clearly a benign thing, but it's not necessarily indicating that it's lichen planus because lupus can be lichenoid. Uh, erythema multiforme can be lichenoid. So it tells you something about the, the type of rash that it is, but it's really still wide open in terms of what the implications are. And then I would even put severely dysplastic nevus in there. That is referring to a specific entity, but in cases that we reviewed um, in our laboratory, um, severely dysplastic nevus ends up being sort of a 50-50 thing, um, meaning that about half the time it's truly a dysplastic nevus that's just got some strange features associated with it, and about half the time it's probably a thin melanoma. And so you want to view that diagnosis not as an exact diagnosis, but as a descriptive diagnosis that might uh, need a little bit more work in terms of what the implications are um, for the patient. So in terms of acting on a descriptive diagnosis, you can't just thumb through a book and say, well, that's what it is and that's what I'm going to do. You have to negotiate a little bit. So sometimes, if you know from the clinical situation, you can assign an exact final diagnosis and go with that. So you get back a report that says lichenoid dermatitis, and you... Um, uh, have a differential listed of lupus and lichen planus, and you know clinically that lupus isn't realistic, well, you can say, okay, my diagnosis matching up with the pathology report is lichen planus, and then you can treat the patient on that basis. You can negotiate to try to get your diagnosis um, improved, and this is where if you provide additional information uh, to the person who's interpreting the case pathologically, um, such as providing clinical pictures, you may be able to get a, a more specific diagnosis. And I do, a, a, I spend a fair amount of time every day um, reviewing pictures and then sending out um, modified reports 
that make my diagnosis more precise, more narrow, more applicable to the, to the clinical situation. Um, you can call um, or you can email in terms of doing this, this interaction um, to, to try to um, clarify the, the diagnosis and, and make it more precise. Sometimes the diagnosis just remains descriptive and it's, it's unclear. So in that kind of situation, you can consider additional testing. If there's a situation uh, where additional testing is possible, we'll talk about some of those situations later. Uh, you can consider um, a rebiopsy. Um, sometimes a biopsy just for whatever reason doesn't give you the right information. I've seen cases where um, it came in rule out lupus and the biopsy showed folliculitis because the wrong kind of lesion was biopsied. Rebiopsy was done a couple years later and it showed characteristic changes of lupus. So sometimes you just have to give up on a biopsy that didn't go your way because for whatever reason there was sampling error or whatever you want to call it that didn't enable an exact diagnosis to be made. Um, a lot of people in our, our Bay Area, I suggest that the patient come into the dermatology grand rounds um, situation where uh, they can be seen by a number of doctors if the case isn't making sense to solve a, a descriptive diagnosis. Um, there's a number of consultants that are available, but teledermatology. So you can send clinical pictures together with the biopsy information to a teledermatology consultant and try to improve the di diagnosis that way. And then you can consider the way that I earn most of my living. You can consider whether or not the case uh, should go to a referral dermatopathologist for an, an, another opinion um, if the case um, hasn't been been resolved at uh, the way that you usually deal with it with your, the lab that you usually um, utilize. So this is a case from, um, from our own hospital, uh, just as an illustration. It's a 13-year-old who had a single extremity lesion, um, and it, it actually came into the laboratory uh, with this history of rule-outed nexal tumor versus lymphoma. And probably they shouldn't have phrased it this way because it turns out that their concern for lymphoma uh, wasn't particularly high, but for whatever reason, that's exactly what they, what they said. So what happened in the situation is that the biopsy that they obtained showed an infiltrate that had a lot of plasma cells in it. Um, we did kappa lambda staining to figure out whether or not the plasma cells were clonally restricted or not, and it showed possible light, light chain restriction. The report um, was a descriptive diagnosis, like we're talking about, plasmacytic infiltrate, just a generic diagnosis. But it, because of the possible light chain restriction, um, it voiced concern for a MALT-type lymphoma. Um, uh, if you haven't encountered MALT-type lymphomas, they commonly show plasmacytic uh, differentiation. And then in the pathology report, it suggested that gene rearrangement could be considered as an additional step um, in, in evaluation. So, after that it all happened, then they contacted uh, us again, contacted me again, and they did a couple things. One, they said, well, you know, even though we said rule out lymphoma in uh, clinical history, we really didn't think it was lymphoma, and uh, so they, they toned that down. And then they sent in this clinical picture, which has a relatively innocuous look to it of just a couple of small um, papules. So um, with that, that sort of helped diffuse the situation um, a little bit. So uh, because of the unimpressive clinical findings, uh, what we did was we repeated the kappa lambda testing uh, because it, it didn't seem to fit with the clinical context. And in the repeat testing, it was non-clone. And so it, that was reassuring. And then the clinical situation was, was, was reassuring. And so the final uh, diagnosis uh, 
rendered on the case was that the patient just had a, a couple of papules of a pseudolymphoma. So by having this interaction, a descriptive diagnosis could be moved toward a, an exact diagnosis in, in a specific entity where you can look it up in a book and, and plan your therapy and follow up um, on that basis. In a similar vein, you can have diagnoses that are negotiable or what you could call ambiguous diagnoses and then non-negotiable um, diagnoses. And so non-negotiable diagnoses are, are, it's much like an exact diagnosis. Um, it's, it refers narrowly to a specific entity and it, it uh, can be precisely acted upon presuming the diagnosis is correct. So when you get a report back that says melanoma is 0.25 mm in thickness, it's a non-negotiable diagnosis because they're just stating what it, what it is. Negotiable diagnoses um, uh, refer to an issue or disease category or a differential diagnosis, but they don't precisely pigeonhole the lesion um, within it. And oftentimes, at least in our facility, our laboratory, we accompany that with a strategy for, for how um, further testing might be pursued. Now, you see a lot of what I'll call non-helpful uh, negotiable diagnoses. Uh, so, for example, spitzoid neoplasm. Uh, that tells you that it's a tumor, and it tells you that it's spitzoid microscopically, but then if it's accompanied with a comment that says something like the differential diagnosis is between a spitzus nevus and melanoma, well, that's particularly non-helpful as a diagnosis because basically they're saying spitzoid tumor, it's either benign or malignant. And so in terms of caring for the patient, you really don't have any idea of what you're up against and, and what exactly should be done. Uh, in a similar vein, you can have a diagnosis of lymphoid infiltrate or a typical lymphoid infiltrate, and it'll, uh, the report may be more flowerly uh, worded, but it'll basically say the differentials between pseudolymphoma and lymphoma. Well, again, this is particularly non-helpful because they're telling you that there's an atypical lymphoid infiltrate. It's either benign or it's not, and it doesn't really help you in terms of, of managing uh, the patient. Um, so what you want to try to do is interact with your um, interpreting pathologist and try to end up in a situation where you end up with what I'll call useful ambiguous diagnoses. Because you, ambiguous diagnoses are necessary and they're part of what um, we have to do as human beings because sometimes we don't know the exact diagnosis at the time we're seeing the case. Um, and so we have to use ambiguous diagnoses until the case has been more fully solved. So um, a useful ambiguous diagnosis such as a typical melanocytic neoplasm. So the differential diagnosis is between melanoma on one hand and an atypical nevus within sun damaged skin on the other hand. And the biopsy was a partial biopsy rather than a full excision. So the pathologist punts to the re-excision specimen and says, re-excise it and then I'll tell you the final answer after I've seen the rest of the case. So that's very useful. You don't have a final diagnosis for the patient. You have to go back to the patient and say the diagnosis is not yet known, but you have a strategy for how you're going to get to the final diagnosis. Um, in the setting of the lymphoid infiltrate, um, a useful ambiguous diagnosis, a typical lymphoid infiltrate, the same as before, but with the commentary, the differentials between lymphoma and pseudolymphoma, we're going to pursue gene rearrangement analysis to see if we can find clonality so that we can figure out whether the thing is lymphoma or not. Um, it's a useful uh, kind of strategy for solving the situation. Commonly uh, in our laboratory, we're using this kind of, uh, of terminology for some of these cases where the diagnosis isn't known right away, atypical proliferation of melanocytes, and then we'll include 
the differentials between um, a melanoma on one hand and a Spitz's nevus on the other, and then fish analysis um, is a testing method uh, where we can screen for genomic problems that are specific for melanoma, and we can use that as a follow-up strategy uh, to figure out what the final um, uh, non-negotiable diagnosis is going to be um, for the case. So just a brief illustration of this situation. It's a four-year-old uh, who has an asymmetrical pigmented lesion that's been enlarging for the, the past six to nine months. It comes into the laboratory just with the simple uh, clinical rule-out melanoma. And so uh, we signed it out uh, as in preliminary fashion as um, an atypical melanocytic proliferation because we couldn't make an out-and-out benign diagnosis. But on the other side of the can, other side, we couldn't make an out-and-out -out malignant diagnosis either. Um, uh, and so then we pursued this fish analysis that I, that I was talking about. We used four different DNA probes to look at different areas of interest to see whether or not uh, genomic changes associated with melanoma are present. Um, the fish showed an imbalance in chromosome uh, 6, the long arm of chromosome 6, and it turns out that that's a, an anomaly that's very specific for melanoma. And so the final diagnosis for the case was spitzoid melanoma of childhood and adolescence, uh, which is a, a sort of newly uh, recognized entity that uh, is uh, not uncommon in our referral practice, although it's, it's uncommon in the United States as a whole. And then the care for the patient using this now non-negotiable diagnosis that was converted from a negotiable diagnosis on the basis of additional testing, uh, the patient's follow-up care and uh, treatment could be planned out um, in, a, in an exact fashion. You want to think about whether the diagnosis you're getting back on the piece of paper matches your diagnosis. Um, uh, sometimes you don't know. So you, you did the reason you did the biopsy in the in the first place was because you didn't know. So um, so then, if you don't know, you don't really feel very attached to your diagnosis, and it's easy to abandon it. And so, um, if you have a, a clinical diagnosis that, for whatever reason, just wasn't right on the target. Um, and you get back a piece of paper that, and you look at it and you think, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so then you can easily walk away from your original tentative diagnosis. You can take the clear path diagnosis and you can say, okay, I know exactly what the patient has and I know what I'm going to do with them. Um, but you don't want to necessarily abandon a, a favorite interpretation when the, when the path comes back and, you, and it's a head scratcher. And you're like, huh, I, I'm a little surprised by that. And um, just a couple of, of quick illustrations. Uh, this was a 35-year-old who had a, a, a two-millimeter uh, dark arm lesion. Um, and the clinical judgment was that it was just a small, darkly pigmented nevus or lenico. And uh, it was biopsied, completely removed, sent off to the lab, comes back as melanoma in situ. And um, so it's kind of a square peg in a round hole kind of situation. Well, histopathologically, what it showed was um, it showed a very small lesion, and um, these are the melanocytes right along the junction. Um, it's got a lot of dark melanin pigment in the overlying stratum corneum, but this is the typical situation that we see in what we call a hypermelanotic nevus. And uh, so it turns out the diagnosis pathologically before it was um, sent as a second opinion, was incorrect. It wasn't melanoma in situ. It was, it was, it was a nevus um, instead. Um, so in this kind of situation, the way it came to light was because rather than just getting the piece of paper back and saying, oh, it's melanoma in situ, I got to re-excise it, the, patient, the, the person caring for the patient got the piece of paper back and said, oh, this doesn't make sense. I need to deal some more with this. 
initiated getting a second opinion, and then the final diagnosis ended up being different uh, than the first diagnosis. Um, similar vein, uh, but with the, with the opposite spin, this is an 80-year-old who had a two-centimeter macular ear lesion with varied pigmentation. Clinically, uh, uh, people were sure that it, it was either melanoma in situ um, or a, uh, uh, a thin invasive melanoma, but the biopsy came back junctional nevus. Well, the reason that uh, biopsy came back junctional nevus I'll talk about in a moment. Um, here you can see that it, uh, there's this uh, slightly varied pigmentation on, on this uh, broad ear lesion. Um, the reason it was called junctional nevus was because we just saw uh, there are nests of melanocytes along the junction, and that's a pattern that you see in a junctional uh, nevus. It turns out it's also a pattern you see in, in melanoma in situ. And uh, with somebody seeing the case who is more familiar with making a diagnosis of melanoma in situ, um, it, uh, the, the correct diagnosis became um, evident. I refer to this kind of scenario as junctional nevus of the elderly. And the, the reason is, is because you can really diagnose the case pretty easily from the demos um, uh, as much from the slide. So two centimeter lesion, somebody deep in their Medicare years, um, it's, it's pretty clear that the diagnosis is going to be melanoma. And if you're getting back a diagnosis of nevus on that kind of case, um, you should distrust the diagnosis. So when you have the clinical and the pathology not matching up very well, um, what do you do? Well, the first step um, in terms of being politic about things is to contact the um, interpreting laboratory for re-review. Um, uh, and if you've got a good working relationship with your um, pathology uh, laboratory or your pathology people, this should be something that's easily done because uh, most pathologists uh, that you know and work with commonly have the best interests of the patient uh, in mind and are, are happy to go back and look at a case again just to verify that, that the diagnosis makes sense. Um, you can lobby for the diagnosis. On a case like this, the junctional nevus, um, when it's actually melanoma in situ, you can provide a picture to the pathologist, um, see if that helps change their view of the case. Or you can consider sending the case um, for a second opinion if, if you can't get the, the right kind of diagnosis out of the case. You want to think about whether or not the diagnosis on the piece of paper is correct. So back to a point I made earlier, um, it's, a, it's a judgment. It's not a machine-generated fact. And so um, it's a fallible diagnosis. Um, if you have a good diagnosis from somebody you trust, there's no reason to question it. But if you have a diagnosis uh, that you feel uh, uncertain about, um, it's something that should be um, addressed. And everybody cares. Um, about quality, and uh, um, and I think increasingly in a time of healthcare reform, you need to think about uh, where you're getting uh, your information from and whether you're getting a good diagnosis. Um, one thing to understand about the discipline of dermatopathology is that the diagnoses can vary, and they can even vary amongst experts. And so this is a, a famous paper from about 12 years ago where they shut up a bunch of experts in a room and uh, had them figure out how well they agreed on diagnoses, and it turned out that there was reasonable agreement, but there's more disagreement than you'd like to see, because you'd like to think that the diagnoses are going to be um, straight on, um, but it's more variable um, than that. Just in terms of reassessing diagnoses, I'm going to just talk about a couple of, of, of points quickly. Uh, one is to beware the unknown pathologist. And so, uh, again, to have a good working relationship with your pathologist and understand how uh, 
your interaction with that person uh, works and be comfortable interacting with that person, I think is a, is a good thing. Um, there's, a, there's a study uh, that was done um, by Neil Pennies, who's a, a, an academic dermatopathologist, and he went back uh, looking through cases where the clinician didn't know the pathologist, so just sort of an, what you could call an anonymous uh, consultation. And there was an, uh, uh, when the cases were re-reviewed, there was an error rate approaching 10% um, uh, in terms of, of the diagnosis. So it's not that you just want to refer to your friends, but if you know the pathologist and have a good working relationship with the pathologist, that kind of interaction can improve the diagnosis um, for patients uh, more so than if you just have the anonymous um, situation. Uh, you always want to uh, pursue reassessment if things don't make sense. I've talked about this um, several times. So whether it's a second uh, review of slides or whether it's a peer consult um, by the person who interpreted the case. And then, of course, you can always pursue uh, reassessment of the case through an individual like me, a second opinion um, on the case from a referral uh, dermatopathologist. So what are the, what are the, the situations that you want to kind of watch for that are prone to reassessment? Uh, so there's several of them uh, that come up routinely. Dysplastic nevus versus melanoma. Um, uh, and as you know, clinically looking at the patient, um, sometimes you know and feel comfortable that you're looking at a, a, a flat nevus on the dysplastic spectrum. Sometimes you absolutely know you're looking at a melanoma, but there's a lot of cases in the middle where you really can't tell. And if you get back a non-helpful uh, descriptive diagnosis on a case like that, it needs to be worked on. Spitz's nevus versus melanoma. It's been a problem for 50 years in terms of uh, uh, sorting that out. Is it dermatitis or is it lymphoma? Um, uh, ends up being something that commonly is, is seen in our referral practice in terms of making a decision. Is it carcinoma or is it pseudocarcinomatous hyperplasia? That's one that's more rare, but it uh, can come up. And just any case not making sense um, is a setting that, that uh, should uh, be uh, reassessed. Uh, and then just individual diagnoses that are prone to uh, reassessment. Severely dysplastic nevus, like I talked about, probably half of them are actually dysplastic nevi, probably half of them are thin melanomas. So be careful about the severely dysplastic nevus. Atypical melanocytic hyperplasia um, is a term that was invented as a euphemism for melanoma in situ. Um, it's not used commonly now, but most of the people who are using it um, are using it to refer to melanoma in situ. And so it's, it's a, it, it shouldn't be interpreted as necessarily a benign thing. A typical spitzoid tumor is really um, a descriptive diagnosis. I would argue it's telling you it's either a spitz or a melanoma, but it doesn't give you an exact diagnosis as the case needs uh, further work. Anything that comes out with atypia um, is, is something that... Uh, might need reassessment, and then again, any diagnosis that's just not making sense uh, should be should be reevaluated. Think about whether the report includes a differential diagnosis, and then think about what that means. Um, we talked about uh, this a little uh, bit before, so it's it's used in conjunction with a descriptive or a negotiable diagnosis, where the diagnosis is less than rock solid. Um, uh, if you have a differential diagnosis coming back and the prognosis and therapy of all the entities in the differential diagnosis is the same, well then uh, there's no trouble. So it comes back with a descriptive diagnosis, epidermal proliferation, whatever that means. It's just a vague generic diagnosis. But then it has a comment that says the differential is either a seb, a wart, or an epidermal nevus. Well, it's benign, 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 and so 
it's not a problem in terms of clinical management. You can tell the patient comfortably you've got a benign thing, even though the diagnosis is um, inexact or, or negotiable. But it's problematic if the prognosis and therapy of the um, things that are in the differential diagnosis vary widely. And so um, if you end up with a differential between two different kinds of dermatitis and the treatment for the same, for both is the same, well then you can do a therapeutic trial and, and no worries. But if it's uh, between uh, things that uh, require different therapy, so it's either benign or it's not, uh, then you need to uh, consider additional testing to um, solve the differential diagnosis. So um, in this kind of situation, whether it is negotiating with the laboratory again, sending them more information, talking to the pathologist, figuring out which diagnosis is favored, whether it's asking for a second opinion to be had, something needs to be done so that the diagnosis can become uh, more clear so you know how to um, treat the patient. Um, is there any method to improve the diagnosis? Um, well, there are a number of strategies. I've talked about some of them. Um, and this falls under what I call um, ancillary uh, type testing. Uh, so one of the things that we routinely do is immunoproxidase staining. Um, and so that can help us recognize the types of cells that are in the tissue biopsy and, and give us more information. Gene rearrangement analysis, I mentioned. Uh, fluorescence in situ hybridization or FISH analysis. Um, CGH or genomic analysis, um, PCR analysis, and then a second opinion. These are all strategies that can be used uh, to refine the diagnosis beyond what you get back um, as, the, as the first um, diagnosis. So just a couple of scenarios um, that come up for our, from our point of view. Sometimes we see a lesion and we can't tell if it's melanoma in situ or a lichen planus-like keratosis. And perhaps as a clinician, it sounds a little silly because those things uh, seem like they'd be different. Well, most of the time they are, but sometimes you see stuff in the middle where it's impossible to tell because there's a lichenoid infiltrate. So what do we do in that kind of situation? Well, we can use special stains to, to look for melanocytes and, and uh, to figure out uh, which way the diagnosis will fall. Uh, we already talked about dermatitis versus uh, uh, lymphoma or pseudolymphoma versus lymphoma. So a common ancillary method we use there is gene rearrangement analysis. So we don't know the diagnosis. We know the differential diagnosis. We may favor the diagnosis one way or the other, uh, but we do the gene rearrangement analysis um, to make things more clear. And then uh, the most important and most problematic situation, is it benign or is it malignant in the melanocytic front? So is it an EVIS or is it a melanoma? And so uh, the strategies that we're using, second opinion is, is, a, is a, remains a good one, but then we're also using fairly routinely the FISH analysis and the CGH or genomic analysis to look for molecular anomalies to help decide um, that differential diagnosis. And um, a non-problematic differential, perhaps, uh, uh, in terms of benignancy is, is it a condyloma or, or is it um, a keratosis? And so it's, there's no question both arms of the differential diagnosis are benign, but obviously the patient cares whether or not it's viral or non-viral. It makes it a big difference in the management of the case. So rather than um, uh, having an imprecise diagnosis where you don't know. I mean, is it really a condyloma or isn't it? Um, most of these cases we're doing uh, papillomavirus typing, which is easily done by a PCR-based method. Um, it's quite inexpensive, and so it can answer the, the, the question more definitively and give you the um, opportunity to give that exact non-negotiable diagnosis to the patient. 
Um, have I provided everything needed to facilitate diagnosis? That's a question you should ask yourself um, if the diagnosis uh, doesn't seem to be uh, going your way. And just uh, to make the, the point that the more information you provide, the better the pathologist can, can do with it. Um, we see a lot of, of offices that I think, I think they're just busy, and so they, they give us the same kind of uh, information on every case. So like, for example, this is what I call the atypical nevus office. And uh, so the clinical comes into the lab as atypical nevus. This atypical nevus was an angiokeratoma. The next case in line, atypical nevus. This atypical nevus was a superficial basal cell carcinoma. The next case in line, atypical nevus. This atypical nevus was a squamous carcinoma. So it's clear that they're not really giving us the straight story because um, I, I think their eyes are, are, are better than that. So what's required? What's helpful? Um, well, the things that are the most helpful um, to us as pathologists and dermatopathologists, the size of the lesion, uh, knowing the overall size, especially in the melanocytic lesion front. So saying brown macule, brown patch uh, is not really as helpful as saying five millimeter dark brown lesion um, or two centimeter dark brown lesion. That kind of information really carries a lot more uh, in terms of telling the pathologist the exact scenario that they're in clinically. Is it one lesion or is it many? Sometimes we see a lichenoid thing and we don't know whether the patient has lichen planus or a lichen planus-like keratosis. And so having that uh, additional information is extremely helpful. Um, is it the whole lesion or is it part of the lesion? And this can make a big difference in making calculations about whether or not re-excision is indicated and how the pathologist puts uh, the, the, the report together. Um, a general description is, is always helpful. It doesn't have to be a novella. Um, we're just looking for uh, the general gist of, of what's going on. And then if there is a leading impression, um, that's also helpful to know, um, uh, to decide whether or not uh, the, the postulated pathology diagnosis fits with the clinical setting. Uh, so having a dialogue with the dermatopathologist, I've talked about this um, in each of the different times, it can be extremely helpful. And then providing clinical images it can also be extremely helpful. And, and those things, of course, can take the place of some of the things that we already mentioned in terms of indicating what the overall clinical scenario is, is, is like. So the last issue I want to talk about um, is, is re-excision required. And this just ends up being an extremely difficult area um, uh, in, in pathology and, and for pathologists. And the, the problem is, from, from our perspective, from the pathology perspective, is there isn't really a clear algorithm to guide dermatopathologists regarding the need for re-excision. So nobody really likes to have a situation where you get a, a diagnosis of benign lesion, comma, please re-excise. I mean that because if it's a benign lesion, why does it need to be re-excised? But sometimes it's, it's challenging to have 100% certainty, and so uh, it's very difficult to, to make that fine decision about whether or not the thing should be re-excised or not. Um, perhaps some of you have seen in your, in your own practice that you can get wide variability um, in, between different pathologists. We've certainly seen cases that were referred in a second opinion where the, the original pathology report said um, atypical nevus, re-excision is mandatory, and then our second opinion ended up being nevus, re-excision is not needed. And so that's the kind of thing that's very confusing to patients because you have a situation where it seems like two different people came to um, diametrically opposed uh, conclusions. So these are my what I'm using in, in, in my referral practice uh, for, for general guidelines. 
Uh, for mildly dysplastic nevi, um, low-grade dysplastic nevi, Clark's nevi, whatever the, the phraseology that you use in your practice and, and that your pathologist uh, uses, we generally recommend not re-excising them, uh, presuming the diagnosis is, is correct and secure. Classical Spitz's nevi. So these are small Spitz's nevi in children where the diagnosis is not in doubt. Uh, don't re-excise them. Nevi with atypia, um, uh, whatever that means, provided the diagnosis is secure, I think generally re-excision is, is a good idea. Um, dysplastic nevi, especially with atypia, um, you have to recognize that some of these cases, it, there's a question of whether or not there's a component evolving melanoma included in the biopsy, and so doing a re-excision is the correct thing. Um, Spitz's nevi that have atypical features, um, if there are atypical features present, there's always some question about whether the potential is worse than the pathologist has judged it. And so, um, again, uh, doing a re-excision is the proper thing. Severely dysplastic nevi, like, that's not a, I, I just hope you view that now as a, as a diagnosis that's a negotiable diagnosis. So anytime a diagnosis is negotiable, of course the diagnosis is not certain. And then, of course, um, re-excision is, is going to be uh, needed in that uh, context. Melanocytic lesions generically, just across the, the broad spectrum, that are reported either descriptive fashion, in ambiguous fashion, in negotiable fashion, all of those cases um, need to be uh, re-excised. And then anytime you're doing a partial biopsy of a larger lesion and then you get back a benign diagnosis, that's a situation where you worry. So I, I pointed that out with the ear lesion. It was a two-centimeter lesion. They did a small biopsy. They got back a diagnosis of junctional nevus. That's a setting where they need to worry, at least, and reconsider the diagnosis and, and think about whether or not the diagnosis um, is actually correct. So I'm going I'm to close now, um, and um, I'd be happy to address any questions. I, I hope that you've taken away that uh, I view the pathology report as a two-way dialogue. Um, uh, so keep up your end of the conversation. Talk to your pathologist, interact with your pathologist, and uh, help improve the situation, the diagnostic situation for the patient. Um, be a little bit suspicious of dealing with a pathologist that you don't know. Um, uh, if you don't have a relationship with a pathologist, you should. And uh, if you have a patient referred into your practice, Carrying a piece of paper from a pathologist that you don't know, um, you should have that piece of paper translated into a second opinion from your pathologist so that the diagnosis uh, becomes more secure in, in, in your own mind. And um, you get back that piece of paper and it seems like an ironclad diagnosis, but I hope I've illustrated that it's actually a negotiation. And so I just encourage you uh, to be a negotiator and uh, um, do some work on behalf of the patient in terms of getting an exact diagnosis. Uh, the weather hasn't been quite as good here in San Francisco uh, since you arrived, but I'm, I'm optimistic, and, and hopefully it'll be like it's depicted in this picture sometime soon. Thanks for your attention. Yes? Not a quick question. Um, just last week, I had submitted a shave biopsy that was atypical nevus, and it turned out the pathologist had written that it was a um, an atypical nevus, excuse me, a nevus with a congenital type features that was that had an architectural disorder, uh -huh. um, and they didn't comment if it was a mild, moderate, or severe architectural disorder. And I had called them to actually get more clarification, and they said they don't actually comment on that normally. 
So I'm still kind of wondering what exactly to do with this patient. Yeah. That, it turns out that's a relatively common situation. Uh, since we're in San Francisco, um, I call those cross-dressing nevi um, <laughs> because they, they, uh, they can't decide if they want to look dysplastic or if they want to look congenital. And uh, um, as a rule, uh, obviously I haven't seen the case, so I, I can't comment um, specifically, but as a general rule, um, when you see cross-dressing nevi, they have their low-grade dysplasia. And so on that kind of case, probably it um, should be treated like a low-grade dysplastic nevus. So in our practice, um, the way I would answer the question that you posed is I would say, I don't usually grade atypia, but if I don't grade it, it's equivalent to a low-grade dysplastic nevus. And so on that kind of case, presuming it had been adequately biopsied, we'd recommend that no re-excision be done in, in, okay. in, that, in that context. Though you can always find an exception to every rule, so the thing to worry about in that kind of case is something like melanoma in situ arising in a nevus where it gives it two different patterns, and so one pattern is melanoma in situ and the other pattern is nevus, and then, of course, that's a completely different situation. Um, but the way you're describing it, I think that's not particularly likely. Um, but the way to control for that is to either get the case reviewed or, or something along those lines. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Um, how do you decide between like a shave and a punch biopsy, especially in a melanocytic lesion? For example, the lady with the ear that you talked about, would a broader shave been a, uh, have been a better sample? I personally think that the, that the shave is, is the better approach um, by and large. Um, you do hear people who, who will say, you know, you can't do a, a shave biopsy. You might shave transect the thickness and... Um, then you're doing the patient a disservice. The problem is, is that for all of those tiny punch biopsies, they're much, for one thing, they're much more prone to misdiagnosis. And they give much less information to the pathologist about the breadth and the degree of circumscription. And these are things that are very important in terms of our interpretation. So the broad shave, um, I think, is much more valuable than, than the punch. I think the risk of a shave transection that uh, alters the thickness measurement is, is minimal. And with experience, you actually can sort of tell where you're at. And right. so if the thing's got some substance to it, you know to get the biopsy down to a depth where you're going to pick up that. Um, so I'm in favor of the, the, the shave approach, as you suggest. I think it's better. Um, uh, the partial punch biopsy uh, is sometimes good if the diagnosis is very, very clear and you're just really checking for the thickness. Um, uh, but even then, uh, I mean, if the, the shave is going to work fine, you're going to get the thickness, and you're going to give plenty of information to the pathologist. And what about if you do that deeper shave, and then you see more melanocytic, you know, pigmentation deeper? Should you shave it again in that same, or should um, you wait? I call those double clutch biopsies, yeah. and the, the uh, um, generally, I think it's 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 helpful. I mean. Uh, the situation is uh, the couple different situations. Um, one, one situation where that comes up is is in blue nevi, and so you do you look at it, you don't appreciate it. It's a blue nevus at the time. You do a shave biopsy, and then there's that pigmentation at the base, and so then you punch or shave out the, the bottom to to get that. Um, that's probably a good idea because it's going to re reduce the chances of the lesion persisting, but diagnostically for the pathologist, it's not going to be important. Um, but in a melanoma, um, the same kind of situation where there's a deeper portion that you didn't appreciate, if you do um, a second, 
portion, they can actually you know, reconstruct the specimen and, and give you a better thickness measurement. And so um, it seems that most people generally opt towards doing that. Um, uh, it's, I view it as optional in the context of a blue nevus if you know the diagnosis, and I view it as helpful in the situation of, of a melanoma. Thank you. Shirley. I just want to um, better understand. I understand interdermal and junctional and compound nevi pathology, kind of how you guys determine that. But spitz, spitz nevi, seeing them clinically, I see very different lesions come back as spitz nevi clinically. So what makes the pathology call it a spitz nevus? Uh, the melanocytes are, are very large, and that's uh, why it ends up being automatically in the, in the um, differential diagnosis of, of a melanoma. So spitz's nevi are kind of curious uh, things in that the melanocytes end up being, uh, they have reduplicated DNA. And so commonly, instead of just having uh, one set of chromosomes, they may have two, four sets of chromosomes. And uh, so because of that reduplication of the DNA, they end up with large nuclei, much larger cells. And so it's a benign lesion with very large cells within it. And because of the large size of the cells, it ends up being uh, worrisome for, for melanoma. In terms of the clinical presentation, sort of the prototypical textbook uh, appearance of a Spitz's nevus is a lesion that looks sort of like an angioma, right. a pink papule, maybe a little bit of a, of a hyperkeratotic surface to it. The problem is, is that there's also uh, a pigmented spectrum where it gets ends up being radically different, and so it, it can be a jet black, slightly scaly papule. And so between the two, you and both of them come back Spitz's nevus, and you look at it and you're like. This is insane because you know I've seen two of them, and I wouldn't have even thought that they were the same thing at all. And that's just a reflection of, of that spectrum uh, that, that you have. So, so truly, a Spitz nevus cannot really be identified without the pathology. Uh, pretty much, that's true. I mean, we do have people who are experienced clinicians, and they they've seen sort of both of the poles of that spectrum. And so they see a kid come in with a juicy, slightly scaly hemangioma-like papule, and the, the little light bulb goes off, and they think, oh, yeah, that's probably a spitz. And so it'll come in, rule out spitz, and, and that ends up being the right diagnosis. I promise but, I'll stop after this one. So of those pearly, you know, the child with the, you know, the pink, scaly lesion, what percentage of those ones are malignant, if any? Do you know? Um, well, it's, it's, it's actually a hard thing to calculate, but... Um, uh, less than five percent. It's it's a small number, but the uh, and and the bigger they get, probably the the higher the risk is. So, uh, but uh, still a, a small percentage of those are what we call spitzoid melanoma of childhood. Can you just talk a little bit about the terminology um, between a dysplastic nevus and a typical nevus? Um, at one practice, the lab we used um, graded everything with atypia. It was either mild, moderate, or severe atypia, and if it was moderate or severe, we would re-excise it. A different lab called, just flat out uses the word dysplastic, and if, they, if it comes back a dysplastic nevus and the margins aren't clear, then we re-excise it. Um, and then sometimes it's a nevus with our, and they code, they code the dysplastics as 239, and then sometimes it's just a nevus with architectural disorder, and that's, they use a 216 code. Uh -huh. But then some textbooks say um, a nevus with architectural disorder falls under the category of being dysplastic. Yeah, and this is where having a steady relationship with one pathologist and one lab can, can be helpful because 
it's 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 difficult to get people yeah. um, sometimes on the same page. The, all the terms that you're using, whether it's Clark's Nevis, atypical Nevis, um, I think atypical Nevis is the poorest term, but the but people still use it. Um, Nevis with architectural disorder and dysplastic Nevis, they're they're all generally equivalent, and um, so different people are using the same terminology for their own reason, or using different terminology for their own reasons um, in in reports. So. So, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So, in terms of the, when you, when you get that kind of report back, um, the the main question to think is, as it seems you're already doing, is should it re-excise re it or not, and um, uh, and then is it sort of on the low end of the spectrum where it's I don't really need to worry, or is it towards the high end of the spectrum where the diagnosis becomes increasingly what I'd call a negotiable diagnosis, where there's a chance that it actually might be a melanoma right. instead of a dysplastic nevus. So I would try to work with a laboratory to get that kind of information, even if they're using disparate language. So, I mean, that's fine that you said it's an atypical nevus, but I really, I mean, is it a you know low grade or a high grade? And as you saw from what I suggest for re-excision, I would favor on the low-grade ones, not necessarily re-excising, and then on the high-grade ones where the diagnosis is somewhat um, negotiable, um, favor doing re-excisions in, in that setting. And when do you just, when it's just architectural disorder without, I mean, even though it falls under the category of dysplastic, when they just say it's architectural disorder, what does that, doesn't that imply that just means there's no cellular atypia? That's, that's what it implies histopathologically. Yeah. So uh, you have to realize that the reason that you should have done the biopsy in the first place with dysplastic nevi, you're not doing the biopsy because you're, you want to find out if the patient has dysplastic nevus syndrome or you want to calculate their melanoma risk. The reason that you do a biopsy on a lesion like this is because you want to know whether it's a nevus or not. Mm -hmm. And so um, the, the idea that you could do the biopsy and figure out if the patient had a syndrome or not, it's pr been proven that that doesn't really work very effectively. So on this kind of case, really just want to find out, is that a good one or is that a, something I need to worry right. about? And so if you have it irrespective of language, and I appreciate the language can be extremely difficult, so especially if you deal with different laboratories, um, you just want to try to push them to give you that simple information. Um, some laboratories uh, will actually, they want all of them excised, mm -hmm. and um, uh, to me that's probably too strong and, and not uh, proper care, but uh, the, all I can say is that if you're in that kind of an interaction, you either have two choices. One is to take it or two is to recognize that there are other options out there and, and perhaps consider a change in who you interact with as a, as okay. a laboratory. Thank you. Any other questions about pathology? Enjoy your time in San Francisco.